Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. When is war justified? What makes a just war? These are difficult questions to answer, but particularly so for Christians, followers of Jesus, who suffered violence without responding in kind. One philosopher-theologian who wrestled with these issues was Thomas Aquinas. Dr. Gregory Reichberg, research professor at the Peace Research Institute Oslo, explores this subject in his new book, Thomas Aquinas on War and Peace, published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Not only does this work do an excellent job in probing in an accessible yet deep way Aquinas' understanding of just war, Reichberg both reveals aspects of Aquinas' thought on war that are rarely examined, such as the connection between the cardinal virtue of fortitude in military service, and connects Aquinas and the just war tradition to contemporary debates about the waging of war. This book is highly recommended for anyone interested in this subject, and it has something to say both to people largely unfamiliar with it, as well as to those who have studied the subject at length. And I would also just point out that this um, was uh, this interview was conducted on Memorial Day, so I'd like to take this opportunity to thank any veterans who are listening for their service. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Gregory M. Reichberg about his new book, Thomas Aquinas on War and Peace. Uh, Greg, welcome to the show. Well, good good to be on the show. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if we could begin with you just telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm my, my title is Research Professor uh, at the Peace Research Institute Oslo, uh, better known as PRIO, you know, its acronym. Uh, I've been at I've been here at Prio for almost 20 years. As the name uh, suggests, we're, we're based in Oslo, Norway. The institute is a kind of cross between a, say, a university department or a university unit with uh, academics who are researching issues relating to war and peace. So it would be that on the one hand, and then something like a think tank on the other. And, you know, with the understanding that a think tank is, is at a think tank, people work on policy implications of, of whatever the thematic area is, say, international relations. Most think tanks in the U.S. have a political orientation, you know, like the uh, Heritage Foundation or the American Enterprise uh, Institute and so forth. Uh, my particular institute, Prio, doesn't have a political orientation. Uh, in my case, I, uh, I'm part of a, a small group at the institute uh, working on philosophical issues. And uh, my particular niche in, 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 in this, this philosophical area um, are issues relating to the uh, linkage of war and ethics. In the philosophical literature, this is referred to as the ethics of war. And how did you get interested in that issue? Well, I 
just to, if we if we take a, a step back, uh, I start my first job out of graduate school. I, I, I did my doctoral work at Emory University, and my first uh, job out of graduate school was at uh, Emory University. Excuse me, at, at the Catholic University of America in Washington D.C. I started there in 1990, and I still remember in 1991 when the uh, Gulf War broke out. The, uh, the dean of the School of Philosophy called me and wanted to know if I, if I could be interviewed by a radio station in Washington, D.C. about the war. And, you know, in, in the interview, I could talk about ethical, the ethical criteria of a just war. And at that point, I'd never studied the ethical criteria of just war. And I was really uh, almost paralyzed with fear at the thought <laughs> I'd have to deal with these issues on the radio. So I found a way to evade, you know, the request of the, uh, the, the dean. But it's curious then that uh, I came to Norway about six years later in 1997. Uh, my wife got a job offer here and uh, we decided to, to try out life in Norway. My wife is a Norwegian and I took a leave of absence from my position, which was then at Fordham University in uh, New York City. Soon after I arrived in Oslo, I ran into an acquaintance uh, who'd been part of a discussion group at the University of Oslo on uh, uh, medieval philosophy. And this acquaintance had recently been hired at PRIO to work on issues relating to humanitarian intervention. Because in 19... 1997, 1998 was the time of the uh, Balkan Wars, uh, and the really hot issue in the ethics of war concerned the justifiability of humanitarian intervention. And so this this uh, acquaintance, now a very good friend, his name is Henrik Sisa, uh, he got the idea of, of uh, hiring me at the Institute because the roots of the humanitarian intervention idea, the roots are really reside, or, or the, the, the roots of the idea are derived from uh, medieval just war theory. So the friend thought getting someone who is a specialist in medieval philosophy, in particular Thomas Aquinas, which is what I wrote, I wrote my doctoral thesis on Thomas Aquinas, an issue in Thomas Aquinas's thought, uh, he thought that this would be uh, a way to further ethical reflection on humanitarian intervention, bringing bringing the the ethical debate about humanitarian intervention, bringing it into historical perspective. Well, excellent. And like I said in the pre-interview, you really can't go wrong talking about St. Thomas Aquinas. No, <laughs> uh, I don't. I mean, I, I would like to think not, although it really depends on who you're 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 speaking to. That's true. Uh, in in some circles, Thomas Aquinas might might come off as an overly uh, as a thinker over with an overly friendly perspective on just war, uh, and because the, the the just war in 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 Catholic Christianity is so associated with Aquinas, people who want to move away from the just war idea within, say, Catholic Christianity, might be wary of the appeal to Aquinas. 
Ah. And I, I can say that not long ago, I was at the Vatican. Uh, I attended a, uh, a uh, conference hosted by the Vatican Academy of Social Sciences. And uh, I approached a cardinal who was uh, at the conference, and I gave him a copy of my book. Uh, and I think the cardinal is, is someone who's a bit more on the pacifist side of the current discussions. I'm not saying he's a pacifist, but I think that's somewhat his orientation. And so when he saw the title of the book, Thomas Aquinas on War and Peace, I, I think he didn't quite know what to expect. <laughs> All right. And it was a bit, I could see a bit of wariness. So that that's just to say a lot depends on where you're situated within, you know, the current uh, debates. Uh, there was an initiative actually a conference that took place at the Vatican, uh, I think it was last year, a group who wants to see the, the, the Catholic Church issue a declaration renouncing just war really? as a church teaching. Yes. And they want to focus on, on just peace instead. Okay. Well, that, so that's... A, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, go on. No, no, that, 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 yeah. So, uh, so, this is just in response to your question. Most people are going to like the sound of, you know, re work on Aquinas when it comes to war and ethics, but there will be question marks in some quarters. Right. And that does is something that you address in your book in places, which is, mm -hmm. will give us a chance to expand on that because that, that's fascinating yeah. to me. So I wonder if you could tell us then, you've, you've written this great book on Thomas Aquinas and war and peace. Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean by just war and what Aquinas's place is in the just war tradition? Okay. Um, I mean, the, the term just war, uh, it, it, it's simply a, the, you know, the English rendition of a, of a Latin term, bellum justum. Uh, and the term itself uh, was first coined by Aristotle, although not in an in a especially, especially technical way. Uh, uh, actually, the term comes up in his discussion of slavery. And the idea of of uh, taking people captured in war and making them into slaves, and he talks about whether this can be considered just or not. And in the in in that context, he uses this term "just war." Uh, but the the word became a kind of common currency within uh, Christianity uh, after. St. Augustine used, uh, spoke of bellum justum. The, uh, so I, I suppose the first thing to, to, to recognize uh, when, when you hear the term is that it, it's when used by an author such as Augustine or, or an Aquinas, it's not meant to be a, first and foremost a term of praise. People often hear the word just war and they say, oh, there's praising war. War is a really good thing. War is war. You know, so uh, it's not exactly that meaning that someone uh, like an Aquinas would want to convey. He's conveying more the, the, the sense that, that there are circumstances in which a war might be considered justified. Circumstances in which a war might be considered allowable or permissible. Okay. Uh, so, oh, sorry. Go on. So we need to move. Just, just we need to ratchet down this this uh, suggestion of, of of a special praise attaching to to war, and I think that 
days when people criticize the, 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 you know, the idea of just war and they want to move beyond it to a notion of just peace. It's partly that, that, that praising connotation that they want to move away from, which to my mind was not really intended by an Aquinas or even an Augustine. Right. And I, I think that comes out through your book because in the, the, your introduction, you, you emphasize that the concept of peace is intricately related to Aquinas's understanding of just war. Absolutely. He's more interested in peace than, than in just war. Uh, and, you know, I do have a, a rather long discussion at the beginning of the book about the precise textual context in which he, he brings up the issue of just war. And as uh, you're aware from having read, you know, read, read the book, he, uh, his discussion of just war is situated within a wider discussion about charity. The, the theological virtue, you know, long, you know, we've got three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. Well, charity is what provides the, the springboard for his eventual discussion of just war. So could you tell us a little bit, how does the idea of peace and charity fit in with war? I mean, uh, you know, we just talked about how people tend to see that, you know, war is a very negative thing. So how can how can peace or charity be a part of it? Yeah, he well, actually, the. It fits in easily if you view war as a negative thing, and I think we need to we need to view war first and foremost as a negative. Uh, for Aquinas, war is, is associated with sin. I mean, there would there there can't be war without there being sin somewhere. It's always sin that occasions war. So the the immediate context for talking about just war in the context of charity is it uh, war is the name of a sin, one of the sins opposed to charity. So, because in, in the Summa of Theology, which is the work in which Aquinas uh, takes up his, his uh, discussion of just war, uh, in that work, every virtue is treated in relation to the opposing vices or the opposing sins. So charity, like every other virtue, has sins opposed to it, sins like hatred. Uh, but in discussing charity, Aquinas uh, notes that there are a certain range of sins uh, that are opposed to charity insofar as charity gives rise to peace. And so there are a set of sins that he calls sins opposed to peace. So in, in order to understand where just war fits into this sequence, we'd have to un, you know, we, I, we just have to explain uh, how, what the link is between charity and peace. And then we'll then we'll we'll consider where just war comes into that. Uh, uh, for for Aquinas, charity—it's another another name for it—is is, is love, uh, love or friendship. Uh, charity is the highest bond that human beings can have between themselves. So charity is a bond of the human being to God, and of the human being to other human beings. And so charity for Aquinas is the is the the unitive virtue. It's the virtue that unites us with others, 
and I'm including God among those others. Uh, so charity is the sort of inherently social virtue, but there are, are vices that move us away from this, this union with others, this union we have to others through charity. Uh, Aquinas talks about vices, well, hatred would be one, but he speaks about vices like discord. And in discussing these vices opposed to peace, Aquinas starts off by talking about schism. And schism is the vice that stands in opposition to the unity, the, 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 the community of believers, being part of the community of the faithful. And it seems when he began writing about vices opposed to peace, he had first and foremost in mind a vice like schism, because Aquinas's perspective in the Summa of Theology, as the title suggests, his perspective is mainly theological. Uh, but then in talking about opposition to peace, uh, Aquinas mentions several other possible sins. One of them is sedition. Sedition is a vice by which I seek to divide up the, the body politic. It's a vice by which I try to disrupt the communion of citizens. And then in that in that same sort of sequence, he, he notes that there are an, another sort of vice disrupts the, the bond of peace, the bond that unites one political community to another political community. And that, that vice or that sin, which, which disrupts the bond of one political community to another, he gives the name war. So war when it arises in the Summa of Theology, actually appears as the name of a sin. Uh, but after having introduced war as the name of a sin, Aquinas steps back and says, but can there be such a thing as a just war? Because he knows from the tradition that he has inherited from thinkers like Augustine that war is not spoken only as a, spoken of not only as a sin, but also as an act that could, in principle, be good, and that's this 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 name, or at least be justified. And trying to account for what the positive meaning of just war, or war in this positive meaning, namely when the when the adjective just is 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 affixed to it, it's it's his attempt to explain what the tradition might have meant by that that Aquinas launches into his treatment of of just war. But it is, there's something uh, about war that doesn't quite fit the rubric of the other sins that he's discussing in this, in this same sequence. Because one, one would never say that there's such a thing as a just sedition. If something is sedition, it means it's wrong. It's just like we don't speak about a just murder. Murder by definition, is wrongful. Sedition, by definition, is wrongful. If you wanted to speak about the just counterpart of sedition, you'd have, you couldn't say just sedition, you'd have to say just rebellion or just insurrection. Similar, similarly, we don't speak about a just schism. 
schism is wrong. And likewise, if you wanted, you wouldn't speak of a just murder, you'd, spe you'd have to speak of a justifiable homicide. So the word just war is akin to a justifiable homicide. Uh, any questions, Frank? I oh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's excellent. For our, our listeners, we're going really through the introduction and um, uh, through the, the first chapter. So that, that's all making sense. Um, and I guess the only question I would, would add on to it then, so, you know, how did it, so you would go to war out of charity, um, love, in hopes of achieving peace? Is that the kind of idea? Yeah, okay, now here here we have to be careful because... The fact that Aquinas discusses just war in the context that I've just outlined has led to two opposing interpretations. And I am trying to navigate between these. One interpretation you could call the presumption against war interpretation. And, and that view, Aquinas raises takes up the question of war uh, in his discussion of sins against peace because he wants to underscore that war and participation in war is, is almost always a bad thing. So the thought is he wants to underscore that war is almost always sinful and you should avoid it whenever you can. Uh, and that there's a presumption against it. So the onus is on you if you're in, participating in a war to show that it's not sinful. But but let's but overall we need to assume that it, that it is. So that's the that's one interpretation of of how Aquinas comes to raise the question of just war in in this uh, section of the summa devoted to, to sins against charity. The other interpretation, the I would say the opposing one, holds that Aquinas wants to lift up just war by placing it within the uh, discussion of charity. He wants to argue that just war can be a really good thing. In fact, it can be among the best things insofar as it's, it, it can be an act of charity coming to the aid of people who are in, in under attack. Uh, so... I argue in the book that neither interpretation is, is, is correct. On the one hand, I don't think that Aquinas comes to the discussion of just war with a strong presumption against it. Uh, if you go to the, the specific section of the Summa where he looks at this, the se sections are entitled Questions. And then each question is divided down into articles. So if you go to the discussion of just war, which is in the second part of the second part of the Summa, question 40, article 1. Most editions of the Summa will, will put the question that he's taking up, is it always sinful to wage war? Which makes it sound like there's a real presumption against ever being in war, ever participating in it. But then I show that that is not, was not actually the title that he intended to have put down for that particular article. The, the actual title that he intended to, 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 to put down 
was somewhat more neutral. It was, is it uh, ever permissible? Is it permissible to wage war? Uh, okay, so somewhat more neutral perspective on war than, than what some people allege. On the other hand, I don't think that there's any textual evidence to show that Aquinas put the discussion of just war in the larger so-called treatise on charity because he thought that just war is itself an act of charity. Uh, when Aquinas discusses acts of charity, there is, there is a sequence in the summer where he looks at what sort of actions flow from charity. He doesn't mention anything connected with war. He, he talks about acts of mercy. Uh, he talks of acts that are ex inherently peaceful acts, acts of, 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 of uh, affection, of, of uh, assistance, and so forth. Uh, I think... I think it would be inherently contradictory to say that an act of violence is itself an act of charity. At the most, I think one could say, and I think this is Aquinas' position, that certain acts of violence, certain uses of force, of armed force, can be compatible with charity. But I think it would be excessive and maybe even nonsensical to say that the very act of striking or killing someone is is, is an act of charity uh, are you following me oh yes yes so and and by the way i've, I've got a a uh, colleague who works on uh, theravada buddhism and and she's seen text in theravada buddhism that come very close to saying that uh under certain circumstances, killing can be an act of what charity? They don't. The word that term is not used. I suppose it would be mercy. That if you're dealing with someone who's a terrible sinner, someone who's doing awful deeds, killing that person can be an act of mercy because you're you're preventing that, you're helping that person uh, to uh, not continue along the path of evil, along the path of wrongdoing. And so you're helping that person not have a, a very bad next incarnation, a reincarnation. Right. So, um, but I, I don't see an idea like that in Aquinas. So basically what he, he wants to argue is that just war can be, uh, it can be right to engage in just war. Uh, uh, and, Sometimes being in, in act, participating in just war can be, it will not extinguish charity or be opposed to charity or be an obstacle to charity when you're doing it as you should in the right circumstances, under the command of legitimate authority and so forth, so forth for the right reasons. Uh, but, but then again, it's not, a, it's, not, it's not itself an act of charity. Right. An excellent point. Just as an aside, if I recall correctly, that Buddhist teaching also appears in Tibetan Buddhism, and it got from there to the Om Shinrikyo group in Japan, and they're the ones that launched the sarin gas attacks yeah. in the early 90s. Uh, and it was based on that principle that uh, if people are very, very bad, it's okay to, to – you're actually doing them a favor by killing them so they don't get uh, more bad karma. Yeah. So the – you know, by the same token – 
we don't find Aquinas really emphasizing that just war when it's when it's justifiable that just war is an act of punishment uh, because in some accounts of Aquinas and of the just war tradition uh, just war becomes coextensive with punishment uh, and so war becomes a setting in which punishment is brought on uh, wrongdoers I think that this is out of keeping with his perspective also it's not it's not it's not the it's not the focus of his his uh explanation on 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 just war uh and so i probably many of of those yourself frank and and those listening to this uh this interview uh have seen the movie american sniper uh where I've read the book. Uh, I haven't seen the film. But in, in the book, uh, the, uh, the soldier in question, I don't recall his name, he emphasizes that he's engaged in war because the people that he's fighting deserve punishment. Uh, and that's why he's right to be killing them. So that too doesn't quite fit Aquinas's account, right? So just war is not an act of charity. That's not, it may be compatible with charity, but it's not an act of charity. Just war is not in and of itself an act of punishment. Although those against whom war is waged may deserve punishment. But war is not necessarily the setting in which that, that punishment is brought to bear. Uh, and I think if one goes down the punishment road in talking about war, that, that, that really opens the door to all manner of excesses, the sorts of excesses that, that we've seen even recently in places like, uh, well, like Iraq, you know, Islamic State, uh, but also I think uh, some, some excesses that uh, one could attribute to uh, even uh, to the way the United States has conducted itself in some war settings. Right. Well, and, and that makes me think of your your third chapter, um, interpreting the gospel, the precepts of patience. Um, I mean, someone could look at this and say, well, you know, this is this is all fine, fine and good that you're trying to be logical and, and think about about how you can um, win war would be okay in certain circumstances. But if you're coming from a Christian perspective, I mean, you're called a Christian because you're a follower of Christ. And in the Gospels, Jesus patiently suffers um, rather than fighting back. So yeah. some people would take that and, and look at this example of Jesus and say, look, that means we're not supposed to fight at all. So can you tell us a, a bit about how Aquinas dealt with this issue? Sure. Um, well, you know, the, the, I know in, in you know, uh, Conducting research in the course of writing this book, I read into some of Aquinas' leading commentators, people like uh, Francesco de Victoria, Francesco Suarez, and, and others. These are scholastic thinkers of the uh, 16th and 17th centuries. And what I noticed is that they uh, they asked the question whether it can be justified 
for Christians to engage in war. And they end up arguing that, yes, Christians can be justified in, in, in waging war. And then they, they tended to, to, to criticize uh, people who think that Christianity requires nonviolence. But in their critique of Christian pacifism, which goes back, you know, to the to the uh, early church fathers, theologians like Tertullian, or Origen, and some others, adopt what looks like a pacifist stance. Uh, in in discussing these matters, Aquinas' commentators rarely sit down to explain what Jesus meant when he said, turn the other cheek. Uh, and I was surprised at that. Isn't, in these settings, isn't Jesus communicating some sort of teaching to us? And I was struck that Aquinas does take the teaching of Jesus in these, in, in the Sermon on the Mount and in similar passages, he does take them very seriously and he tries to explain what they mean. Uh, he doesn't just sidestep the question. Uh, and so what I find Aquinas doing is adopting what in Protestant settings will go under the, the heading of a two kingdom theory. You know, Luther is famous for, for having articulated the theory. Aquinas has something like a two-kingdom theory. Uh, and, and so what he says is that uh, Jesus exercised an authentic kingship. But the ki his kingship, uh, his rule, was of a kingdom that transcends this world. It's of a kingdom that's present in this world, but is situated, its base, if you can call it that, is outside of this world. So it's a, it's, it's a world, it's a kingdom situated first and foremost in heaven. And so for Aquinas, that kingdom over which Jesus rules in that kingdom, there's no place for violence. Uh, however, that kingdom does not encompass all of what happens in, in, in this world. Uh, and so, just as Jesus distinguished between the things of God and the things of Caesar. The, the things of God are regulated by the kingdom over which Jesus rules, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. The other kingdom, the kingdom which pertains to, to matters relating to Caesar, is referred to as the, the temporal sphere. And Aquinas thinks that in the temporal sphere, there's a need to, to maintain order there's a need to repress wrongdoing. So that 
in the temporal kingdoms of this world, there is a necessary function for justified violence, justified use of force. Uh, so Aquinas understands uh, Jesus' teaching, turn the other cheek, as being especially relevant to those who are witnessing to the kingdom that is not of this world. So it, so nonviolence will be the mode of behavior most suitable for priests and for consecrated religious nuns and monks. Uh, and Aquinas was particularly attentive to the, the, the role exercised by priests because on, on Aquinas' Catholic understanding, uh, when priests celebrate the Mass, they stand in the place of, of Christ. And so Aquinas argues that within the Christian community, there are people with certain functions that require of them that they renounce resort to violence. So he's very so he develops a sort of two kingdom theory in order to explain when use of force can be justifiable and when it would not be justifiable. And it's mainly a, a focus on the people who the individuals who and the roles involved. Uh, it's interesting to note that when Aquinas looks at certain scriptural passages, and he Aquinas spent a lot of time commenting on scripture. It's said he's said to have known the Bible by heart. Uh, he discusses the you know the the phrase in Matthew, uh, "Turn the other cheek," and then Aquinas notes that that line should not be taken literally. Uh, well, why not? Well, Aquinas says that, well, when Jesus was struck on the other cheek, when that happened to him, he didn't respond by turning the other cheek. Well, what did Jesus do when he was struck on a cheek? Aquinas says, well, he asked a question of the person who struck him. He said, why did you strike me? He engaged in dialogue. So all of this to say that Aquinas does not think that we should read uh, statements like turn the other cheek, do not resist evil, as being statements that should be taken literally as providing an instruction for what we should do in unqualifiedly in all circumstances whatsoever. This is a teaching for what we should do in some circumstances, you know, and especially by some people. Excellent. And, you know, talking about this two kingdoms theory, that kind of, I think, that touches on um, the issue of legitimate authority, which you explore in Chapter 6. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit, that was, in many ways, to Aquinas, that was one of the main main requirements for a just war was legitimate authority. So could you tell us why that issue was so important to him? And what would constitute legitimate authority for Aquinas? The yeah, I mean, you know, start off by noting that 
that the Middle Ages were a, a quite a violent period. Uh, there was a widespread prob problem in many of the places where Aquinas lived. I mean, he lived mainly in, in parts of Italy and also in, in, uh, in France and Paris. There was a problem with rape, for instance, uh, that he discusses in various places. But there was lots of violence going on in the Middle Ages, and there were many you know, armed bands, roving bands. And so by the time Aquinas took up the issue of use of force, uh, initiatives had been underway in Europe, you know, from the time of Char uh, Charlemagne on, to try to bring this pervasive violence under control. And they, you know, and it was it, uh, not just the problems of armed bands, it was issues relating to, to, to blood vendettas and so forth. Uh, so the trend, you know, by the time Aquinas began writing was that the justifiable uses of force were re that were restricted to certain to people with certain functions, uh, and the you know that and, and it was people who had functions associated with political rule and also judgeship, exercising judicial functions. Uh, so Aquinas takes into account all of this earlier work uh, and really what he wants to show along with others. He's not really innovating at this point. What he wants to show is that uh, there are certain functions within the political realm that um, entail a monopoly of violence. Right? That violence, the exercise of violence, I take, by the way, the word violence not as, not as meaning uh, having a pejorative uh, moral uh, connotation. Violence means use of force. But that the use of violence should be needed to be needs to be restricted to people who can exercise it in the proper ju in, sort of judicial way. Uh, so this leads Aquinas to uh, putting legitimate authority as the first of his famous three criteria of a just war. You know, if you, if you study anything about the, you know, the idea of just war, uh, you'll, you'll find out right off the bat that, that there just war can be understood according to three criteria. And the criteria are that uh, war, war can be just when it's exercised by a legitimate authority uh, for a just cause and with a right intention. And these famous three criteria of a just war derive from Aquinas. Uh, and in fact, Aquinas has become famous for, you know, as a just war theorist, mainly because he was the one who formulated these three criteria or three requirements of a just war. Uh, he, he's the one who, who made these, these sort of criteria known. There had been earlier criteria uh, discussed by Aquinas' predecessors, often with more detailed criteria. Uh, and in fact, the Aquinas had predecessors who were much more interested in the realities in, the real, in war than he was. But the fact that he crystallized these down to three central criteria sort of put 
just war on the theological map in Western Christendom, and and it still remains the the main the main uh, framework for discussing just war, you know, in our own day. But anyway, Aquinas lists legitimate authority as the first of the three criteria, uh, and he, in 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 doing so, he he gives two arguments for legitimate authority. Uh, the, the first argument is I refer to in the book as the uh, no, I, I would have to take a peek here. It's the no higher redress argument. Uh, just war can only be exercised uh, by someone who has a mandate from the highest authority in the land. Uh, and basically Aquinas is working with a kind of picture that you would have of uh, civil society. And let's say in, in, in just in walking around, you know, walking around uh, town in South Carolina or in Oslo, uh, if I think that someone has wronged me, I'm not entitled, and that, and I think someone's wronged me, and that person, you know, deserves to be held uh, accountable, and perhaps even punished. That Aquinas, Aquinas doesn't think. Aquinas argues that I'm not entitled to apprehend that person myself. Right? As long as I can, I can have recourse to some authority that has responsibility for holding people accountable. I must do so. So right off the bat, when Aquinas is discussing just war, he has first and foremost in focus the idea of initiating a just war, starting a just war in order to in order to seek remedy for some bad state of affairs, in a state of affairs involving grave injustice. Uh, And so only, he, he wants to argue that only the highest authority in the land can undertake such an action. So he's got this this no higher redress argument. Uh, he has another argument for the requirement of legitimate authority, and it's an argument based on efficacy. He says you you can only have you can only wage war in an effective way with a coordinated military force. You can only do that if the force is under the command ultimately under unified military command. Uh, and not just military command, but first and foremost political command. Uh, and if you don't put the use of force under unified command, chaos will result, ineffective military action. If we were to you know, read into Aquinas' writing on legitimate authority, and if you were to ask me, well, what did what was Aquinas's original contribution to the discussion? Because most of what I've said already, he was just summing up views that had already been well developed and you know represented in his period. Aquinas's main contribution, I think, was that he discussed legitimate authority uh, in connection with with the exercise of virtue. He wanted 
to, to explain what sort of virtues should be acquired by the people who are in positions of authority. What sort of virtues are needed in particular for exercising what is potentially the most weighty form of authority, namely using, you know, engagement in war, uh, the, the, the application of an army to, you know, or the, the, the commanding an army to uh, engage in war. So Aquinas is very concerned that, 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 this, this, that leadership skills should be exercised in conjunction with virtue. And I think he's got something important there and something that's novel. So I spent a, a good deal of time in that chapter talking about what the virtue requirements uh, are uh, for, for people in positions of leadership. Oh, excellent. So for our, our listeners, um, this is a very rich book. There's a lot of depth. There's a lot of detail. And as you can see, we, we've, we've had to skip around for a few chapters. So I, if you if you find some things that are interesting here, I hope you'll go out and buy the book and uh, read the whole thing. Because there's this is just like I said, in, you know, uh, Thomas Aquinas is himself an incredibly rich um, figure. And Greg has done a great job of, of just going out and explaining his ideas in a very um, easy to understand manner. But one thing especially that makes this book so important and uh, significant, I think, has to do with the fact that, that – um, Greg working at this this peace institute as he is is also interested in how does this this connect to today's world. So I'd like to to shift things to um to maybe to chapter 11 where um Greg talks about St Thomas and the doctrine of doctrine of bellum justum today. Um and some scholars have have argued that modern catholic understandings of just war have diverged from those of Aquinas and his early successors. Um, could you tell us why, Greg, why some think that way and whether you agree with them or not and why? Well, the, you know, the main, you find different sorts of arguments, but, but one argument is that the contemporary Catholic thinking on just war has taken a kind of pacifist turn. Uh, and I've already alluded to that. Uh, so, uh, and in, in the contemporary Catholic setting, you'll you'll find people who appeal to Aquinas. Actually, not so much nowadays, but you have found appeals that want to maintain that there's a very strong presumption against war, against engagement of war. And so, some people maintain that if you take this very strong presumption against war argument, uh, you might say that that just war is a hypothetical possibility, but no concrete condition will ever meet the very high ethical requirements set. So although war might remain, just war might remain a very hypothetical uh, possibility, uh, in actual fact, nothing will ever count as, as a just engagement in war. And so you end up with a kind of uh, de facto pacifism, a hypothetical just war, but de facto pacifism. Uh, and so some argue against, you know, the way in which Aquinas has been brought into that debate. Although, as I've noted, it, it, you don't find Aquinas being brought in a whole lot in that way lately. Uh, the, I can't say that, you know, my own, my own work, uh, I found the sorts of arguments that Aquinas makes. And, you know, we, we haven't, you know, we, we've touched on a few issues 
he has a fascinating discussion of courage in war, uh, conditions under which Christian uh, fortitude can be manifested on the battlefield. So that 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 would be worthwhile talking about had we more time. Uh, Aquinas also has quite a bit to say on how faith can be brought into the context of war and what way there can be religious rationales for being in war. And I mention this because these two points, because in my current work, I, I engage in dialogue uh, with uh, often with, with Muslims uh, in different parts of the Middle East, lately in Iraq in particular. Uh, and, and in a place like Iraq, uh, what we call just war is a very live issue. Uh, and the issue of fighting uh, Islamic State, uh, for many Iraqis, uh, it, it, comes to them within a religious context. Uh, so, I mean, for instance, uh, one of the Grand Ayatollahs in Najaf, uh, Grand Ayatollah Sistani, put out a call to all Iraqis uh, to uh, take arms for the defense of the country against the, the attacks of uh, the Islamic State. Uh, so, having a kind of theological background and a theological vocabulary for talking about just wars is, has been of help to me in entering into dialogue with other believers, but from a different religious tradition. Uh, Aquinas, you know, might seem paradoxical, provides a very good inroad, inroad to those kinds of discussions. Well, it, it, I mean, it makes sense in a part because Aquinas, I mean, he's he's kind of baptized Aristotle, right? He's very interested in in this kind of idea of using natural reason to discuss these things. So it, 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 is that helpful in bridging he, this kind got, of gap? Or? He's got, well, for one hand, you've got the, the natural reason, absolutely. But he, he uh, and if, you know, if we go back to say this, uh, the, the call to arms by uh, Ayatollah Sistani, he, in issuing that call, he he made an argument that bears a resemblance to what we would call a natural law argument. In other words, he he didn't call on his fellow Iraqis to he's he's a spiritual leader for the 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 Shia Muslims, one of the, one of the main spiritual leaders for Shia Muslims in Iraq. But he didn't he didn't frame his. The, the, the call to defense of the country and defense of the innocent people under attack. He didn't frame it by reference to um, uh, holy war or defense of the the ummah, you know, of the Muslim community. In fact, he cautioned against resorting to arms in that context. He cautioned against resorting to arms in a sectarian mindset. So, so I think he, he, he framed it in a kind of what we would call natural law context. Um, but uh, it's also important to understand how uh, 
natural, what we'd call natural reason or natural law reasoning. It's also important if one's a, a, a believer, a Christian. I've been given the example of dialoguing with Muslims. We're also, you know, monotheistic uh, believers. It's important to know how rational arguments or natural all kinds of arguments, how they are situated in relation to the sort of existential dimensions of faith. Uh, be, because as you know, as, as believers, we uh, we can't operate with absolutely separate parts of our minds. You know, we don't have the natural reasoning parts of our minds separated from the faith part. Uh, we, we, we need to think about how to bring them into some kind of unity. Uh, and Aquinas is very good at speaking and at those two levels, but also joining them together. So again, I find him to be, uh, uh, to provide a, a, a set of concepts and, and even more so an approach for talking about war in these two these two registers, the, the 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 natural law register on the one hand, what we would call natural law, and then the faith register on the other. Uh, and one of the things I find most lacking actually nowadays in in contemporary discussions of war and ethics is 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 a way to bring those two discourses together, the faith discourse on the one hand and the 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 kind of rational philosophical discourse on the other. The the two tend to inhabit separate universes, separate fields. Right, right. And that is um and I guess in a sense that's what Aquinas in some ways was struggling to do. <laughs> yeah. Um well you had mentioned and, and thank you very much for show you know writing this excellent book and showing how this thirteenth century philosopher theologian is able to speak to us today and hopefully contribute to to peace in Iraq. Um, so it is, in fact, Memorial Day here when this is being recorded in the United States. So you'd, you'd raise something in your last quite in your last response. I want to, to just kind of direct back to since it is Memorial Day. Uh, you'd mentioned this issue of Christian fortitude on the battlefield. And, and this is covered in Chapter five of your book. So I just wonder if you could uh, being it's Memorial Day, if I could just ask you to make a, a couple comments on um, this idea of virtue of, of fortitude on um, on the battlefield. Fortitude is, you know, one of the cardinal virtues. Uh, the, 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 you know, the four cardinal virtues are uh, prudence, temperance, courage. I've got one missing here: prudence, temp justice. Justice. Of all the chapters in the book, I think the courage one was the most difficult to write, actually, because Aquinas does something that's that's kind of curious. Uh, when he discusses the cardinal virtue of courage, he notes right off the bat that the paradigmatic manifestation of courage for Christians is martyrdom. And martyrdom, as understood in the Christian tradition, not entirely, but mainly, is bound up with nonviolent witness. So Aquinas immediately raises the question, is, he's got two questions. One question, if martyrdom is the highest manifestation of courage for a Christian, can there be any value in battlefield? Can courage also for a Christian be exhibited on the battlefield? Can it be good for a Christian 
to show courage on the battlefield? Uh, and th to that question, he answers yes. Uh, but then he's got another problem, which was a, a kind of a curious one. Uh, Aquinas, in explaining what courage is, he, he uses a definition from Aristotle. And on uh, Aristotle that said that courage is uh, a virtue that consists in facing death without excessive fear, not just in any circumstance whatsoever, but in circumstances where the greatest fear must be faced, namely fear involving loss of life on the battlefield. So for Aristotle, courage is exhibited first and foremost on the battlefield. So then Aquinas has the problem in adopting that definition of courage to explain how martyrdom could fit the Aristotelian definition, how martyrdom involves something like courage on a battlefield. So Aquinas ends up in this, this, this interesting kind of dialectic where he, he attempts to bring together two forms of courage that we often separate and, and again, treat in, in, in very separate ways, very different ways. Nonviolent witness, martyrdom, and then courage on the battlefield on the other. What Aquinas does is he, he says that courage, whether in martyrdom or by a soldier on the battlefield, nonviolent witness or violent witness, he says that in both cases, there are two appetites, two desires, two emotions, to use a, a more modern term. There are two emotions that have to be mastered. There's the emotion of fear. But he said courage involves not only dealing with the emotion of fear, that's what Aristotle highlighted, but courage also involves the emotion of daring, of attack. So what Aquinas does then, especially for battlefield courage, courage exercised by soldiers on the battlefield. Martyrdom is another kind of battlefield, a kind of spiritual battlefield. Tries to explain how soldiers have to learn how to deal with these two emotions. So, for instance, when it comes to the emotion of fear, Aquinas is really very intent on emphasizing that fear, that Virtuous soldiering does not involve uh, suppression of fear. It's rather a matter of moderating fear. Uh, and Aquinas thinks that experiencing fear can be a, a good thing. He said, fear warns us about dangers that are at hand. And so not having fear on the battlefield can be a bad thing. Uh, my father was in the Second World War, and he told me he had some fellow combatants, some fellow soldiers who, who adhered to the idea of machismo. And he said he couldn't believe the risks that they took. He thought that the risks were excessive. And sometimes if you put yourself in harm's way unnecessarily, 
that's not good because dead soldiers can't live to fight another day. Of course, fear can become excessive. And so what courage involves is knowing how to, learning how to moderate fear when it starts to become excessive. Uh, but then Aquinas has a lot to say about this, this emotion of daring. And daring is an emotion by which we, we, we go on the attack. Uh, and this is something that, that, that arises instinctively in us. Um, but here, too, you need, you need to know how to go on the attack when you're on the battlefield. Uh, fighting is not just moderating fear, knowing how to keep fear under control. It's also about going on, you know, taking the initiative, moving forward. Uh, but here, too, daring can become excessive. Uh, I've done a bit of reading into wartime atrocities, like, you know, the famous My Lai incident. Uh, and what happens sometimes on the battlefield is that, well, let me step back and say that fear and, and daring often have a kind of reciprocal moderating relation. So what prevents daring going on the attack from becoming excessive is often that you, you fear the consequence of going on the attack. Namely, you might get badly harmed or killed. And so they're, they, again, fear can moderate daring. But in some battlefield situations, especially ones in which soldiers have been living under circumstances of acute fear, and when all of a sudden there's a reversal, and a group of soldiers end up in the in the driver's seat, they've suddenly they, 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 their their adversary has been crushed, has been defeated, and they're in control, and all of a sudden the feeling of panic that they might have experienced beforehand is reversed. And instead of rushing away from danger, you rush directly into attack. And so often this emotion of daring is transformed into a kind of frenzy. And that's when some wartime atrocities take place. I mean, if you read accounts of Mai Lai uh, or the Naking uh, massacres in China, uh, when hundreds of thousands of Chinese soldiers were slaughtered, uh, the soldiers who were took part in the killing of already defeated soldiers, they were just slaughtered by the thousands. Some of them said afterwards it was like they came out of a trance. They didn't even know what they were doing. You know, when you're in a panic, you can't think straight. You're just running. You're just acting on, on, on emotion. Uh, in this sort of reversal setting that I've been talking about, it's no longer panic. It's daring that's, that's, re that, that's, that's released as a kind of pure emotion. And thought is no longer present. Reason is no longer present. So Aquinas spends a lot of time 
trying to talk about how reason comes into these two emotions and gives structure to these two emotions and how the two emotions of fear and daring can be have a uh, a collaborative relationship and balance each other to make for effective uh, soldiering, effective soldiering that's also ethical soldiering, right? Soldiering that that does not go beyond the moral limit. Well, excellent. Well, and that's a fascinating, you know, kind of. It's interesting how this theologian philosopher could gain such a deep understanding of war. I mean, part of it, as you point out, was he was. I think I had a couple brothers that that were in the service. Yeah. Um, and of course, thank you for your father's service too. Um, well, we've taken a lot of, a lot of your time. Um, I hope our readers or our listeners have enjoyed this listening more about this book, and I hope their appetite's been whetted and they'll go out and get this book. Um, I wonder though if we could take just a little bit more of your time and ask you our traditional new books network question: What are you working on now? Yeah, now I've. You might have noticed in the uh, preface to the book, I I say towards the end that, you know, I've in writing the book, I've covered most issues in Aquinas' writing that relate to war. Uh, I add, however, that I do not in the book have a really uh, comprehensive discussion of religion and war as it comes into Aquinas' writing. And, and I say that'll have to await another venue. Uh, and so really what I was alluding to there was the whole idea of, was the, the idea of holy war and its different manifestations and how that came into Aquinas' thinking about war. And um, what I'm very interested in looking at is how Christian ideas about holy war and Christian practices relating to holy war, practices like the Crusades, Inquisition. Inquisition could sometimes take the form of war, as in the the war against the Albigensian heretics in the 13th century. I'd like to investigate what we should think about holy war as practiced by Christians today. Is holy war an idea? Well, and a set of practices that emerge from the idea that should be entirely abandoned by Christians today? Is there no room anymore for holy war practices? Say, war, one, one manifestation of, of, a, of holy war would be waging war for the protection of faith. So is there any place for that today? Uh, and the you and I were talking about uh, what I do, or you know, before the, we began the interview, you were asking me what sort of work I do at the, uh, at the institute, uh, Prio, where I work. Uh, and I almost said to you that uh, we don't have teaching here, but what replaces teaching and, and grading, grading papers and exams, uh, what replaces that is writing grant applications. <laughs> right, right. Right. So, um, so I've just written a grant application uh, with the title uh, uh, "Renunci the Renunciation of Holy War in Catholic Christianity." What I would what I have begun investigating, and what I'd like to get funding for to investigate more thoroughly, is the idea that most holy war practices have been abandoned in Catholic Christianity. 
But I want to test that thought. Have they been abandoned? On what grounds have they been abandoned? What exactly is meant by the term holy war? You know, it's not, there's a whole set of phenomena that go under the label. Um, and should we, are we operating with holy war categories even today? And should we be? What kind of piqued my interest in this and sort of, to my eyes, showed the relevance of it is I happened to read a discourse that, a uh, kind of interview, really, uh, uh, Stephen Bannon, uh, President Trump's, President Trump's uh, chief strategist in the White House. Uh, Stephen Bannon gave an interview to a group assembled at the Vatican in 2014. And it's entitled something like How Stephen Bannon Sees the World. Uh, you can find it on the Internet. Uh, and in the course of that interview, Bannon spoke about a kind of worldwide war that was in its early stages to his mind. And he says that this is a war to defend Judeo-Christian values and that future generations will judge us on how we've behaved, how we've, we've conducted ourselves in this, in this conflict. So what I find Bannon presenting in that context is something like a crusading idea, something like a holy war idea. He doesn't use the word crusades. Uh, but his description of the, the sort of major war that's in its early stages and it has a kind of an apocalyptic, you know, dimension to it. Uh, the way that he talks about that conflict and the defense of Judeo-Christian values seem to me to be reverting to the earlier Christian holy war tradition. Uh, so nowadays we think that the people who are appealing to holy war ideas are the Muslims. Uh, we, that's the association that comes to us when we hear about uh, waging war for faith. Uh, and of course we get extremely negative images when we think about it. Uh, but I want to argue that for those of us who consider for those of us who consider ourselves Christians, and I, I consider myself a Christian, we need to think about the place of these these holy war rationales within our own faith tradition, uh, where we stand in relation to them, uh, and uh, do they still have a, a a value for us, or are these ideas that that we, we have abandoned or, or should abandon? And how are we to judge our Christian pasts? How are we to judge, say, the Crusades today? Were the Crusades bad? Should we condemn the Crusades? Or inversely, should we say that the Crusades manifested something good? But if they were good then, are they, would they still be good today? Can we say that the Crusades were good then, but would not be good today? a kind of historical relativizing. So these are the sorts of issues I'd like to uh, go into more deeply. Well, that sounds fascinating. I, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing where that research takes you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And of course, uh, to listeners, those who have been taking part in this, in the, listening to the discussion, part of the dialogue, really, 
I'd be happy to get your feedback about the book should you read it. Uh, you can easily find my email address uh, if you Google my name. Excellent. Well, well thank you so much for, for taking time to talk with us today. And uh, have a wonderful day. Thanks, Frank. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this interview. This has been the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch, one of the hosts of this channel. And I want to thank you for listening to this interview. And I hope you'll come back and listen to another one soon.